You're listening to the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. If you're an aged care professional, you can connect with us at the Prof. Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Facebook group. Otherwise, you can connect with us at our regular page at Prof. Joe Online. You can also visit our website at profjoe.com.au for a collection of all our links. Also, feel free to email us at info at profjoe.com.au. Welcome. Welcome to the Prof Joe COVID-19 Aged Care Podcast. In this podcast, we'll be talking to Simon Brown Greaves, an eminent psychologist, to discuss the issues around mental health and aged care. Welcome, Simon. And could you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Thanks, Joe, and very pleased to be here on this very interesting and important subject. I'm a psychologist. I think eminent is a very generous title. I've been practising for just under 40 years in my space, uh, originally as a clinician, but these days running a business and an organisation that provides psychological support to a range of organisations across the public and private sector, including healthcare in many shapes and forms. And from our earlier conversation, you noted that you'd had your own personal experiences with being locked down. Are you able to share some of those thoughts just to give our listeners a, a sense of your own personal experience recently? So I, I was overseas at the time that the whole COVID thing broke and I was indeed on a cruise, a short cruise with some family members and we found ourselves isolated in South America uh, very quickly and unable to get ashore. So we ended up spending an extra few weeks um, traversing up and down the coast of South America to find a port that would let us disembark. Fast forward to uh, early March when I was then able to, with my partner, get a flight out of San Francisco home to Sydney at which time the isolation period had begun. So we went straight into an alleged five-star facility in uh, Sydney, which I can assure your listeners was not operating as a five-star facility, just in case anyone thought I was in the lap of luxury for a few weeks. And almost within 24 hours, I began experiencing symptoms that were clearly, uh, in my mind, a potential for COVID. I was tested after about five or six days in Sydney and indeed found to be positive. And my wife shortly thereafter also tested positive. So we we spent the next four weeks in a number of facilities in Sydney. And what was probably most interesting, apart from experiencing the illness itself, and we both had very different experiences, and my wife was quite knocked around by it. And and to this day, some eight weeks later, is still suffering some of the uh, post-viral effects. Apart from the illness, Joe, was... It was a really interesting experience to be completely deprived of your liberty with absolutely no capacity to exercise the normal day-to-day routines that one takes for granted. I don't know whether you knew this, Joe, but I started my career as a clinician working in the prison service and then spent some time in policing. And uh, I probably naively thought I had some sense of empathy around the notion of being imprisoned. But when you are in detention and unable to leave, get fresh air, and your meals are delivered by three armed police every meal, every day, it's quite a confronting experience. One thing that helped us, which I'm sure we'll come to in our conversation today, was we understood the purpose. We completely understood and accepted the necessity for us to be isolated and locked down. 
And I think it's a good segue for people that we might be talking about at times who feel like, you know, is this really necessary for me? Should I have to do this? And the idea of being not free to make choices, I think, is is very correlated to people's mental health and wellbeing. And inadequate information, I think, for people in health or aged care who know what's going on, the lack of information was particularly stressful. Do you have any thoughts about that? It was it, For us, it was not the absence of information, interestingly. It was the complete inconsistency and the contradictory nature of that information and literally on a daily basis. So we were, in our experience, we were provided with bits of paper on a regular basis from a number of sources, including, you know, public health agencies from Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, who were primarily responsible for us uh, from a care perspective. And then the media, of course, and I'm sure we're going to chat about the media in a broader context, uh, Joe, but every one of these sources of communication contradicted each other on a daily basis. So we often found ourselves sitting there going, we're really not clear about the process that we find ourselves in or what the next steps are, what's going to happen to us and where we're going to go. Let's call it, what's my source of truth when it comes to the situation that either me or my agency finds myself in? And that was obviously a challenge, particularly in aged care, where there are 900 providers for the you know, 2,700 facilities. The federal government's responsible for aged care, but the states and territories are responsible for the public health response. And so that sense of confusion, I'm sure our listeners identify with. The challenge would be how do we provide that one source of truth and is one source of truth ideal when we're in times of uncertainty? We're not very good, I don't think, as a community at at simply accepting that it's uncertain, that there may not be a concrete source of truth. When you are uncertain about something that is real and your response is rational, that's not a mental health condition. You know, that feeling is in fact a natural and adaptive response to something that is unknown but presents a risk. What do you think are the main threats to a person's mental well-being during the COVID pandemic? So a couple of things that I think are relevant. The first one obviously goes to the importance of social connection in our normal day-to-day experience. So an optimal state of mental health and well-being, we require a certain degree of social connection that enables us to connect with other humans, whether that's physically or in conversation. And this whole experience has, for many people, reduced or even removed the opportunity for their normal or preferred level of social connection. At very practical levels, this means, you know, we easily utter the phrase, well, aren't you lucky to work from home? Well, maybe, maybe I'm lucky to work from home if my home is a good place to work and if if I can still maintain my productivity in a way that I would like to, and my employer probably wants me to. But what does it mean for where I normally got my social connection? What's really interesting too at this time is that we, we're operating in a world where social connectivity at work is a really important part of what drives people to go to work in the first place. The second thread has probably you know, I, I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate this in the early stages of this process, but it's become more apparent as I chat to all of our counsellors and clinicians, and it's this, that despite COVID and isolation, 
normal life issues continue. So whatever you brought to COVID in terms of your family or your, your work or relationships or business pressures continues on, but now continues on in an environment where you are restricted in your ability to deal with those issues. All of those normal ways that we respond to and manage the day-to-day trials and tribulations of life have altered. And, you know, we are seeing an increase already in issues relating to family conflict and relationship breakdown. I think the third general category of threats to people's mental health and wellbeing is one of the few times in my career where there is wholesale apprehension and concern about society. You know, I mean by that, that people are worried about what's going to happen to themselves, their family, their community. Are they going to get sick? What's going to happen to their businesses, their employment, their economy? And these are not irrational fears. These are fears that are based upon, sadly, distinct possibilities. There are people losing their jobs. There are people losing their homes. There are people who are getting sick. Fortunately, not so many in Australia as we were concerned about, but any one of those things will have a profound impact on people's mental health and wellbeing, let alone if you throw those three things together. Just drawing on that, that the emotional response or the psychological response to high-stress situation is typically fight, flight or freeze. So we either run away from it we stand motionless, not knowing what to do, or we take the fight on. It's such a good point. And if you remove the capacity for flight, because you are essentially uh, legally and socially constrained, you really only have a couple of options. You know, so one can freeze or one can fight, but you can also adapt. So one thing I've been surprised on in our experience is how quickly most people adapt and functionally adapt to this changing circumstance. If you'd asked me to predict that two months ago, I'm not sure whether I would have got that right. Do you think there's a danger that we label people for reacting in a way that we think is unhelpful and condemning them? And I think the classic example is the people going down to the beach that We all throw our arms up in horror saying they're foolish and they're not socially distancing and they're being rebellious and stupid. Is that just a spectrum of normal behaviour or can we be pejorative? Yes, it's a really, really interesting point. And and we all have to make our decision about how we think and and approach this issue. Uh, But I think the idea of recognising that it's a natural human instinct, isn't it, to embrace our freedom, to embrace our choices, to, to get out and about and exercise those liberties that we're so used to. So we're asking people to cope in a very unnatural set of circumstances. So yeah, yeah, I think I think we could be a little more generous on it. It's certainly not helpful to tag them as difficult or problematic because, you know, that in and of itself is not helpful. We've heard a lot around the lockdowns in residential aged care and the the high mortality risk for older people. How would you feel or how do you think families and residents are coping with a situation where it seems that they're bearing the brunt of the COVID pandemic because of the characteristics of the virus and the setting they're living in? Uh, The inescapable reality as I'm seeing it is that they are not only genuinely in a high-risk environment, and that is undeniable uh, given the experience not just in Australia but in Europe and the United States, 
One would reasonably expect, therefore, that levels of apprehension and anxiety potentially are going to be higher and rationally so in the aged care environment. And also, if I can put in a quick, you know, a bit of a vote for the aged care workers, because it seems to me that we get a lot of recognition and acknowledgement of the frontline health workers. But I would like to acknowledge that the sort of frontline aged care workers are similarly in an environment where they are providing primary care, but also providing a 24-7 social network and an environment where that is absolutely critical for the well-being of their people. So it's no surprise that in addition to that, much of the media attention focused on the aged care environment at the moment strikes me as being particularly negative. And I really hope that we don't make the mistake that we've done with cruise ships. And I'm not and I and I raise the cruise ships only because I think all of us can see that there is a almost a demonization of cruise ships. You'd almost not want to acknowledge that you'd ever been on a cruise in this climate because people will look at you as some walking petri dish. But I think aged care runs the risk of being demonised in the media in a way that is obviously uh, unreasonable and uh, and unfair. So is that likely to have uh, an exacerbating effect on people's sense of well-being and apprehension? I, I would expect so. You've mentioned the issue around staff and I wanted to ask the question about is it staff seniority or staff experience or staff personality or staff training that is one more important than the other? Interestingly, when a person feels competent in their role, in other words, if they feel that they're adequately prepared, skilled and capable, particularly frontline health workers, that is a major plus in terms of their psychological well-being and coping. So it's easy to look at the negative side of this. That is, if someone feels like they were not prepared for the COVID situation, they didn't know how to go about managing clients or residents, then that is going to have a predictable negative effect on that staff member's well-being. So we're seeing smart organisations investing a fair bit in capability development and in particular the, the special capabilities necessary to deal with the current circumstances. The situation in aged care particularly, and I've heard this often and throughout my career when someone in their 90s dies, is everyone says, well, they've had a good innings and, you know, I, I don't know what you're sad about. They've lived a full life. It's time to move on and there are things to do. Disenfranchised grief is a thing. There is absolutely no doubt we are going to wrestle with this as a community. It is in front of us as we speak and it relates to a whole range of things where you interrupt the normal grieving process by postponing, abandoning, not recognising or dismissing. And your point is so true. I think in Australia we're going to largely for one obvious reason, our numbers are not the same. But can you imagine in New York City, if you were one of 20,000 people who passed away, the significance of that from a collective point of view runs the risk of being lost. Oh, yeah, we were just one of the COVID fatalities. Yeah, there was 20,000 of you. It's a bit like a war. Whereas every one of those deaths has a family, a, a social network, staff who cared for them, who are affected by that loss. And I like your point. I think for someone who maybe elderly dies as a result of COVID, we've got to be really careful to make sure that we still pay the respects and the 
you know, uh, enable the grieving for those around them because I think that will carry significant ramifications if we don't. I wanted to get now to, to the practical aspects of what would I do as a manager or a senior leader in an aged care facility? How do I detect mental health issues that are arising in staff and families? Do you have any tips around what to look for and how to approach that? The number one issue in this environment is finding ways to notice the difference in people and their behaviour. But when we're in this slightly more or significantly more isolated environment where our intimate connections are reduced, we have to help people still be able to create opportunities to notice difference. And I would be constantly emphasising that for peers and or line managers to be saying, in this time, small differences matter. And coaching them up, of course, to make a sensitive inquiry based upon that observation. You know, Simon, I've noticed for a couple of days now, you you just don't seem to be your normal self. What's happening for you? That's the first point. The second point is that, interestingly, and almost probably ironically, if someone asks me how I am, my response to that is, good, you're fine, you know, no worries. But if someone says to me, hey, Simon, how are you managing your work schedule in a remote environment? Well, you'll get a response to that because I can articulate that. I can say, oh, my God, it does my head in, you know. By lunchtime, I'm going crazy and I can't get out. And my point here is, funnily enough, it won't be the questions that you ask about how you're going or how's your mental health. It'll be having a series of questions that help you to understand very specifically what someone is struggling with or not. So we find questions around your normal routines. We even coach managers up to ask questions like, so what's different about your current routine and how are you managing that? And we find those things open up into the well-being far more readily than an inquiry about your well-being. The third point, I think it is reasonable to assume where people are significantly disrupted in their social connections, whether that's you know, working fewer shifts or not being in the facility or or just working flexibly from home, we have to redouble our efforts to connect those people and provide multiple ways for them to be connected. That goes with something else we found very helpful is that for many people, establishing a, a new operating rhythm, a routine in their new world of work is actually quite important. And I'll tell you just one thing I've learned is you've got to have that conversation early as a manager or supervisor because people form new habits very quickly. In terms of having picked up some of the, I guess, issues around people struggling to cope or needing an extra helping hand, we're taught find the problem. But when we do find it, we often don't know what to do except to pat someone on the shoulder or, or say, go, go talk to your doctor. Um, or I'll have a cup of tea, or I'm, I've got to head off now, I've got some other work to do. Thanks for telling me you're not coping. Being heard and having a, a good conversation about these issues is in and of itself helpful. You know, my, my staff in particular, who might spend an hour chatting to someone through their particular issues, will often be told, you know what, no one else listens to me for an hour and gives me their undivided attention, which 
you know, we might think is a little sad, but it's the reality of a modern world. So I wouldn't underestimate just the power of a good conversation. I'll tell you what we're seeing a burgeoning uh, use of, uh, Joe, and that is peer support programs. One of the issues that's been raised is that even if I wanted to see a psychologist, their flat chat or we're in isolation. And so how do I build a relationship with a counsellor over the web? Whereas we tend to trust people because we see them, talk to them, and their body language matches their spoken word. So it's a great description of the traditional view of the, the sort of therapeutic alliance, isn't it? So we've done thousands of online sessions that would previously have been done face-to-face and we are tracking people's response to this. And I've been absolutely surprised by how well both clients and counsellors have adjusted. Now, notwithstanding that, yes, the, the point you make about there are still some elements missing, but people are still quite willing and capable of adjusting to this new format. So back to your point. A couple of really important things here. Most uh, of the organisations to which people belong who might be listening to this discussion will have an employee assistance program. Part of the requirement of that employee assistance program is to provide a timely service. So I think that the waiting lists are not quite so bad if your organisation has an EAP. You should and will be able to speak to someone within 24 hours. And I would expect that. I, I think we should be holding those organisations to account. And my understanding is, by and large, that is occurring. Will everything be better once COVID is over? And so my anxiety will dissipate and my life just ticks over back to normal. How real is that sort of thinking? The answer is it's not likely at all, is it? It's Our world is going to be different. I would be quick to point out that there may well be some silver linings. I don't think we're being Pollyanna to look at all of a sudden there's a bunch of employers who've worked out that flexible work practices can function, right? But it's not going to be the same. And eventually people are going to deal with some of the issues that have arisen in the course of this time, individually and collectively. However, will people recover from their apprehensions and and concerns? Well, the answer is it depends upon their personality, doesn't it? Because the optimist will probably bounce back pretty quickly. The pessimist will be waiting for the next COVID and now they will be able to, in their minds, justify and say, well, there you go, I told you, this stuff does happen. Yes, it does. Just in closing, do you have three tips of how to stay mentally as well as you can? Number one, stay connected and really work to keep up your social connections. And in fact, the sub-tip to that is reach out, you know, don't wait for someone to call you, absolutely reach out. The second thing, find purpose in whatever you are doing to help you manage your time in, if you are in isolation or lockdown, retain that connection to purpose. And what I mean by that is, if you have time and capability, make sure you put into that time some things that will serve you in the medium to longer term and that will give you a sense of meaning to wake up in the morning and to tackle and to achieve. And the third thing is, don't pathologize. That sounds like a terrible clinical word. If you're feeling things, and they are things that are in response to this pretty crazy, tumultuous, different world that we're all wrestling with at the moment, don't feel that that's a mental health condition or something of concern. We are resilient and adaptive creatures 
And as those external influences and craziness settle down, for most of us, our feelings will also start to return to normal. On that note, Simon, I I will close the podcast there. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Good to chat to you. You too.